But we're going to, as Pastor Ryan said to the children, we're going to be continuing on in our Dale Lindelwood series where we're taking the time to translate and understand more meaningfully the language and words and phrases which are used in the church and have been used in the church for centuries. But some of the words which lead us and leave us thinking, what? I almost feel like I should know what that means. You ever, you ever met somebody and you know they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't pass you by on the street and they'd stop and they'd have a conversation with you? And my father-in-law is mustard for this. He'd be stuck and he'd be chatting with somebody and then my mother-in-law would turn around and go, Leslie, who was that? And he goes, ah, not a ball there. <laughs> not a ball there. Right? You almost, almost feel like you know them. You've known them for so long or you've heard them for so long that you almost can't ask what their name is anymore. And sometimes it's a wee bit like that with words that we use in the church. Sometimes we just assume that everybody else knows what they mean, or we assume that we've been around the church for so long that we should know what they mean, that actually it would be a little bit awkward to actually ask, well, well what, does, what does that actually mean? And that's why we're doing this series, because it's really helpful for us to be either reminded or informed for the first time about what some of these words and phrases that we use in the church actually mean. So, so far during the series we've looked at the topics of baptism, we've looked at the Trinity, um, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and Pastor Joanne a couple of weeks ago looked at the, the word alabaster and what all of that meant. But this morning we're going to take the time to look at the topic of sin. Who's glad they came to church this morning? Right? We're going to look at the topic of sin, a nice cheery one for us this morning, but so important for us to understand it, to understand its origins, to understand its impact, to understand its hold over us and how it is overcome, not only in this in the life that is to come, but how it can be overcome in the here and now as well. Now we are, and it's no secret, we are part of a global denomination in 164 different world areas, the Church of the Nazarene. And one of our articles of faith is actually regarding sin. And that's a good place for us to start this morning as we dive into it. The, the statement on sin is actually, and the article is actually a really long one, and you'd be glad to know I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but actually I'm going to just read it at the, read the opening paragraph, which you'll be glad to know is two sentences long. It says this, the opening statement of the article reads as follows. It says, we believe that sin came into the world through the disobedience of our first parents and death by sin. We believe that sin is of two kinds, original sin or depravity and actual or personal sin. So again, there's lots of Christianese words in there and you're sort of going, what does that mean? To summarize that, what it's saying is that we are not only born into sin, but also we engage in sin. And that's how we're going to unpack this for a little bit this morning. But don't worry, in our unpacking, we won't forget the remedy, we won't forget the rescue, we won't forget the sacrifice. We won't forget, as we talk about sin, we won't forget about hope. We won't forget about Jesus. But 
let's go on a journey. You ever had somebody tell you a story and they said, well, for us to understand this, we need to go right back to the beginning. And you kind of go, oh, I shouldn't have asked. Yeah, just me? Just me? Seemingly just me, right? But to understand this, we need to go right back to the beginning. Now, creation story. We tell it to our children. We still teach it in schools, albeit alongside some other stuff, but we teach it in schools. We are grounded as a, um, as a people in this room in the creation story. That in the beginning, God created. Now, a couple of years ago, whenever we were doing a series working through the creed and we looked at God, the creator, I asked if anybody knew what the first five words of the Bible were. Does anybody know what the first five words of the Bible are? In the beginning, God created. And, and, and I was listening to it back this week, and everybody said confidently, in the beginning, and then stopped. But then I was like, well, that's three words. In the beginning, God created. So out of the shadows and the darkness came light. The sky is formed, then God creates the dry land and the bodies of water being named seas and the ground being called land. Plant life is created and the earth is green, the sun, the moon and the stars are hung in their place. Then the birds of the air and the fish and creatures of the sea are created followed by the creatures that live on the dry land. God looks at his creation. He looks at all that he has made up until this point and he declares it good. And all I can think of is, do you remember Brucey who used to say, or maybe it wasn't Brucey, but somebody used to say, it's, it's good, but it's not right. That's actually off catchphrase now that I think about it, isn't it? It was Roy Walker. He says, it's good, but it's not right. God looked at his creation and says, it's good, but there's something missing. It's good, but it's not perfect. We're told that God then declares, let us create man in our own image. And then the first man, Adam, is created from the dust. And from his rib, God brings forth a woman, for he knew that it was not good for man to be alone. Everything was perfect. Everything was as it should have been and everything was as it was created to be. God gave man dominion over the garden in which Adam and Eve had been placed. They worked the garden without shame and without restriction, free to eat of its produce, but told by God not to eat from the center, the tree in the center of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve had an abundance. More than they could have ever asked for. And God walked with them in the cool of the night. Do we have anybody who in the perhaps better weather enjoys a good stroll? Be it um, one of my favourite places to stroll is, is the Convent Walk up the north coast up towards Stuart. Adam and Eve, as they went out on their wee evening stroll, were told that God presenced himself and walked with them in the cool of the night. How class is that? That the presence of God walked with them in the cool of the night. God joined them on their evening stroll in paradise. 
Yet, we read words that are behind me here, words that are all too familiar. Found in Genesis 3, 1 to 6. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it also. There's a few things here, and you'll be glad to know we're going to go into all of them, but one that particularly jumps out is this. That the word of God to Adam and Eve was distorted by the serpent. It was twisted. I am did God really say? Did God really say? If he did say it, it's because he doesn't want you to know something. And the word of God to Adam and Eve was distorted, twisted, and it led to sin being allowed dominion in the world. See, Church, it's, it's really important that we actually know what this book says. Not what we think it says, but what it actually says. For the enemy of our souls, from the beginning of creation, has been taking God's word and he's been twisting it. And he's been distorting it. And he's been rationalising it. And he's been trying to tell us that we are wrong for thinking and for standing for what it says. He's been trying to trip us up. The serpent did it in the garden with Adam and Eve and he did it again with Jesus in the wilderness. Only that time he was not as successful. See it's important that we know the promises and the word of God so that we do not fall victim to the sin that so easily entangles and allow God's commands and instructions to be rationalised, to suit our own agendas, to make us feel better over the agendas of others. It's really important. Do you remember the old Greek chorus, and we still sing it every children's day, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so, right? What would it look like if as the people of God we were to take the attitude of well, I know it's true. How do you know it's true? Because the Bible says it so. Because the Bible says so. You see, sin entered the world, and because of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God, because of the rationalizing and rationalization that took place, because they took of the fruit that they knew they were not to take of, even though it had been packed up all night, even though it had been rationalised to be saying it was okay, because they took of that fruit, sin entered into the world because of their disobedience, and we are all born lost. 
lost in our sin, without spiritual life, that inclined to evil, and that can tear him. Aren't you glad to keep the church this morning? It's not a nice reality to speak of, but sadly this is the truth. You don't believe me? Who thinks my two eldest are absolute angels? <laughs> they are. They're absolute angels, but sometimes they're fallen angels. <laughs> you see, see, whenever we tell these two strong-willed, nearly three-year-olds that they are not allowed to do something that they want to do, they dig their heads in all the more. They turn, they smile, and then they do it anyway. <laughs> and if poor, innocent little children do that, how much more do we? We're all born into sin, lost in our sin. And sadly, because of the choices of Adam and Eve back in the garden, there's nothing that we can do about that. But we didn't choose to be dead in our sins. We didn't choose for Adam and Eve to choose so early. How is that even fair? How is it fair? You see, a perfect relationship with the perfect God was damaged. It wasn't broken, but it was damaged that day. He who is without sin cannot tolerate sin. Righteousness and holiness cannot tolerate sin in his presence. A chasm has been formed. A chasm that is too wide to cross on our own. See, the giver and source of life and life in all of its fullness mourns, mourns, cries, is devastated. For the spiritual deadness of his created order, that which he has created and has created in his own image, has chosen their own pleasure and their own desires over him, have chosen their sin over him, and it leaves his heart broken. For he is a God of justice. He cannot forsake who he is and let them off without consequence or without something. He can't simply turn a blind eye because he loves them. He can't turn a blind eye to what happened, pretending as if it never did happen. No, you see, because that's not loving at all. That's the opposite of love. That's the opposite of truth and that's the opposite of justice. One of my least favorite jobs in the world is disciplining my children. It's one of my least favorite parts of fatherhood. Because it hurts. I used to, I think I've shared with you before that whenever my father used to say, this hurts me more than it hurts you, I used to think, dead on like that. But now, I recognize what he's saying. Discipline is uncomfortable. 
not only for the one who is being disciplined, but it's uncomfortable for he or her who has to discipline. But it is necessary. You see, wouldn't it have been lovely if God could have just turned a blind eye in the garden? Well, he made a mistake. We'll not hold it against you. We'll try again tomorrow. But he couldn't. A definite choice had been made. A defiant disobedience had happened. And God, in his love, refused to let it slide. Have you ever, maybe you need to edit this bit out, but have you ever met somebody who just look at and you think you were not slapped as a child? <laughs> I don't condone, don't condone that. Have you ever look at somebody and you see a distinct lack of discipline in their formative years? God didn't want us to turn out like that. So in his love and in his mercy, discipline needed to take place. And as Adam and Eve are subsequently banished from the Garden of Eden, from that paradise where God dwelt, they grow farther and farther away from God in the way in which they lived their lives. We're told that one of their sons kills his brother, that sin grows deeper and deeper within the human heart and the choices are made time and time and time again to violate and disregard the commands of God. And it didn't stop about Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel. You only need to read through the Old Testament in particular to see that a vicious cycle begins in the hearts, of, hearts and minds of the people of God. And not just the people of God, but their foreign adversaries as well. And I'm not going to bore you by talking you through that cycle in great detail again, but People were in right relationship with God. They took their eyes off him and went their own way. They got themselves into terrible bother. They think to themselves, we better call back out to God and he will come to our aid and God comes to their aid and the relationship is restored over and over and over and over and over and over again. A vicious cycle. And even as we dive into the New Testament and come across more spiritual giants such as Peter, Mary, Martha, Paul, Barnabas, Lydia, Timothy, John, Priscilla. We see that whilst these are men and women of great faith, that this did not happen by accident. That they did not just stumble their way toward holiness or holy living by chance. But that's really that they were flawed individuals in need of someone to break the cycle of sin in their lives. And even whenever they were saved by grace, Paul, perhaps the poster boy of them all, writes words to the effect of, I know what I ought to do and I do not do it. And I know what I ought not to do, yet I still do it. Because of our fallen nature, because of original sin in our lives, we are sinners and in need of a saviour. Yet because of our free will to choose, 
God's not some evil puppet master in the sky who designed from the beginning of creation that we would be disobedient and therefore need to be punished and disciplined. No, he's a God of love who despite knowing what we would do, still created us, still loves us, still pours out his love upon us. Yet because of our free will to choose, there are often times when personal sin gains a foothold foothold in our lives as we choose to do that which is not pleasing to God but is contrary to his word and to his commands. That's why Paul writes to the Romans as Alison read for us earlier. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of sin. Sorry, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness, rather. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, there's a debt that must be paid. The wages of sin is death. But God doesn't leave it there. God doesn't leave it there. One of the things that baffles me most about our omniscient, all-knowing God is that even though he knew that we would choose sin, even though he knew that I would mess up, even though he knew that I would choose things that were not of him, even though he knew those things to be true about you and about me, he still chose to create us. And he still chose and chooses to love us and to make a way for us to return to him. To make a way that that chasm that sin created, that is too wide for us to cross on our own, to make a way for that chasm to be bridged. You see, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, God the Son, who being in very nature God, did not quality, uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped, and he took on the form of a human, taking on the very nature of a servant. He who knew no sin would take upon himself the sins of the world and pay, to pay the debt of sin that was owed, that we might be brought back into relationship with him. Because remember, that relationship was not broken back in Genesis 3. It was not broken on the day of the fall. It was not broken when Adam and Eve chose that which was not of God. It was only damaged. 
And he took on flesh and dwelt among us and laid down his life that he might mend that relationship and make possible relationship in all of its fullness with him again. But in the here and now that we can experience newness of heart, life and mind. And then in the new heaven and the new earth that will come from out of heaven, we would walk with God once again in the cool of the night. That just as his presence walked with Adam and Eve, so too would his presence walk with us in the cool of the night. The restoration of the created order, damaged by sin, restored through the blood of Jesus, shed on the cross for you and for me. But that blood was not shed so that we could punch our ticket to heaven and feel good about our eternal destiny. For that is only a part of this story. Listen to these words from Jesus, from John chapter 8. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Not only are we freed from sin when we are cleansed by the accepting of the gift of his salvation through repentance, but we are given of his spirit and of his grace to empower us to deny sin any further foothold in our lives. Sin no longer has to have or hold any power over our lives because the power to overcome this sin has been given to us by his spirit. Now that doesn't mean we're always going to get it right. That doesn't mean that we're always going to choose the right way over the wrong way. It doesn't mean that we're not always going to choose God in everything that we do. But what it does mean is that it is possible to do so. It is possible to do so. But God in giving his spirit to us does not take from us our free will. For love does not force himself. Love does not make those decisions for us. But love offers himself freely. And he offers a better way. He offers the best way. And he offers power to overcome the hold of sin in our lives. And he offers the same power to us that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That same power, that same Holy Spirit lives with us and gives us the power to overcome. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the gift of God, or as Allison's translation, the New Living Translation says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? When it's laid out, when all the facts are laid out for us, it's a no-brainer. Love himself comes to us today and he says, I know you've got it wrong. Well. 
I know that you've chosen things that are not me. I know that you've chosen things that aren't good for you. But today, he offers us that clean slate again. As we heard last week from Pastor Philip, he is the God of the second chance. But he's also the God of the third chance, and the fourth chance, and the fifth chance, and to infinity and beyond. And today he offers himself to you afresh. And he says, you don't need to live in your sin anymore, daughter. You don't need to live in your sin anymore, son. Come to me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But know that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. And if you're able, I invite you to stand. We've been sitting for a while. Let's, let's stand as we pray together and then we'll sing in response.